The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Marcela Mora Iarajo and Jonathan Wilson. We talked about the late Diego Maradona and the outpouring of grief that greeted his death in Argentina and around the world. We also talked about the darker side of Maradona, his mistreatment of the women in his life in particular, and the tangled question of whether one can separate the art from the artist. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by the Left Book Club. A subscription to The Left Book Club makes the perfect gift for socialists and bookworms in your life. The Left Book Club sends the best books on radical and progressive politics directly to subscribers' doors. You get one book per month, carefully picked by a small dedicated team. Their choices reflect the most urgent, thought-provoking and important writing from across a broad range of contemporary and classic left traditions. Recent Left Book Club picks have included The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, Down Girl by Kate Mann, and Authentocrats by Joe Kennedy. The books arrive in handsome, unique editions that draw on the tradition of the original Left Book Club, which was set up in the 1930s to help popularise left-wing ideas and challenge the spread of fascism. In addition to the books themselves, subscribers get access to a thriving community of online book groups and author events, and big discounts from publishing partners like Pluto Press, Repeater Books, Tribune Magazine, and many more. Plus, the Left Book Club are giving away a free book with every new subscription ordered until December 25th, so you can treat yourself while you're doing your Christmas shopping. No need to leave the house this year, give the gift of radical reading, and curl up with ideas to change the world. Go to leftbookclub.com to order your subscription now. And now to today's two-part interview. In the first part, I spoke to journalist Marcela Mora y Arajo. Marcela specialises in South American and Argentinian football. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, The Observer, The Financial Times and The Times of India, amongst many other venues. Marcela was speaking to me from Buenos Aires and I began the interview by asking Marcela why Maradona meant so much to so many people, both in Argentina and around the world. Well, I think there's something very interesting going on. There is, there's a strong identification from the underdog, the, the, the more deprived areas of the world. This idea of the, of the, the popular mass, the people, clearly much, much stronger with Maradona than, than with other players. But also, I would say, clearly a much larger proportion of his popularity um, if you like, is with those sectors. And um, perhaps Marcelo Bielsa got it in a nutshell um, about people who, uh, you know, the, the humble, the people with less resources and opportunities being the ones who need to believe that it's possible to to change your circumstances and to to kind of achieve things. It, it was very poignant and very well encapsulated. I guess there isn't a, a simple answer. If there was, we would be able to 
um, address many social issues of, of our time and of other times. But there's something about a certain mystique, a kind of romanticization of his codes, you know, the street code, the, the, the behavior mm. of the, the vacant lot, the, the kind of alternative anti-establishment thing that he never left behind. There are many, many other cases of footballers from humble backgrounds. Indeed, most are. But perhaps as they become professionals and achieve success, they learn to, or, or, or don't learn, but choose to adopt the codes of industry or the codes of stardom, of the codes of celebrity. Mm. Maradona appears to have remained true to the, to the, to the kind of the codes of his origins. And I think that's something people like very much. And and do you think that perhaps that might, as much as anything, be a reflection of the extent to which Maradona was perhaps just personally uncomfortable being around maybe people from a more you know a more privileged background, perhaps? Um, I don't think he was uncomfortable being around anybody because he always the absolute centre of attention and the superstar. And uh, you know, I've I, I've seen all manner of people humbled by him and want to meet him and have their picture taken and the autograph and I think you relish that I've seen him interview the president of Ecuador in the 2014 World Cup he was he had a, a TV show throughout the World Cup and they interviewed the president of Ecuador who was visibly just blushed and Maradona would just pat his yeah. eye and go come on Prezi you know <laughs> and uh, so I, I don't believe it's a it's a question of not being comfortable. I always remember, though, in his he had a, a massive testimonial kind of tribute match in uh, 2001 in Argentina, and there was a, a, a big party afterwards in a five-star hotel with all anybody who was anybody there, you know, dancing and chanting Maradona, Maradona, while he stood on a stage. And at one point I went into the, the kitchen because I had a, a young child and I wanted to get some food up to the room where he was being looked after. And chatting with the staff in the kitchen, they told me that Diego was regularly coming in and sitting down there just for a bit, maybe having a drink of water and, and just having a chat with them. And I, that was a really, that stayed with me because it, it, if you if you were in on the other side, you know, in the foyer or the, the party room, the salon of the five-star hotel, you wouldn't have imagined that he was taking, seeking refuge in a, in the busy kitchen. And I think there is, we like to think, yes, that's because it was his people. He felt identified. He felt safe there. But, but also maybe he just needed a sit down, you know, and he would have done the same if it had been the, the, the private office of the prime minister or something, you know, just his natural ability to weave his way out of a crowd into a, a place where he could gather his breath again. But so, so I don't think he was uncomfortable. I think in a way he kind of did slightly despise everybody. The, the, the posher, the more he despised them and the, you know, the, the more corporate, um, kind of profit making, the more he wanted to show that he was not going to stoop to the conventions and the rules of formality or protocol. But he, his kind of derision for, what was expected of him or, or, or for rules, really, 
mm. and and conventions was pretty much across the board. So I've equally seen events where he's meant to come to support the Red Cross or raise funds for an orphanage or something. And he's just as late or just as likely <laughs> not to turn up and yeah. everybody's standing there waiting. And, they're, you know, they're, they're, they are the people. He's not just, uh, you know, giving the power and the elite the runaround. He, he was mm. giving humanity the runaround. Yeah. I guess, in a sense, that's quite democratic. And maybe that's part of this idea that he, did, he didn't discriminate. He was just awful to all of us. Going back to that point you make about the way he's sort of seen as as a as a champion of the underdog or you know even sort of subaltern populations. I mean, it was very striking seeing that uh, mural in in the ruins of Idlib after after he died, which you know it's sort of unimaginable really to 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 think of uh, something similar with a different footballer. But on the left, I'm sort of aware that there's been a lot of commentary uh, that's very favourable to Maradona and and almost positioning him as being uh, uh, akin to people like. Uh, Muhammad Ali, for instance, and, and sort of taking his political uh, stances very seriously. Uh, would I be right in thinking that, that you're a little more sceptical about that stuff? I think it's very difficult to affect change in society at a deep level. And I think football is a really interesting vehicle to try and do that. And there are many, many initiatives all over the world um, of, of various degrees of success or intensity that, that, that attempt to use football for, for proper kind of transformation and social change. And I don't believe Maradona was a champion of that or even had it in his kind of range of, of proposals for himself to do mm. that, which is not to say that I, that I think he wasn't a truly significant symbol and a really powerful motivator and inspiration. And I, and I do believe, I, I think, well, his origins in very humble poverty, circumstances of actual poverty, by, mm. you know, by any definition, are completely genuine. And his commitment to never forgetting the poor in the world was also genuine. But I think... Many other footballers and football projects and various ways in which football is more organized to structurally try and, and, and drive change. I, I made the comparison with Marcus Rashford. Not saying Marcus Rashford is better, but Marcus Rashford is a really interesting example in the UK because he hasn't uh, shown a kind of a gesture of personal charity. He has started an awareness campaign to try and, and affect change in others. And I think that is a really important aspect of social change and transformation. And if you like revolution. So my point is, I don't think Maradona was revolutionary because I don't, I don't think he wanted to be. It's not a criticism. It's just, you know, I think he might point out a deficiency in a system and be right about it but but he 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 didn't have the either the nous or the will or the interest or the support to truly implement a, an awareness or, or or a change in others everything was mm. about him with him so he might well give a lot of money to charity or organize a, a charity game or give people you know he was kind he was he he would charge 
a lot of money for interviews um, most of the time, but but would often do something for free if it was a project that he felt was 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 nice, was grassroots mm. enough, was was related to to people who didn't have loads of money. So in that sense, he's he was genuinely uh, concerned with acknowledging the social differences in the world, and he would always talk about them. But I think what I you know another very poignant way to see this is he he spent a lot of time in Cuba recovering from from illness and he loved mm. Cuba and he loved Fidel Castro and they smoked big fat cigars together and so yeah. <laughs> but he didn't live in Cuba as a Cuban as a Cuban yeah. he lived in Cuba as you know like Hemingway did in a massive gorgeous yeah. <laughs> house enjoying the beauty of the island with access to you know Castro and everything that entailed so he he was always the absolute celebrity. He was, you know, he was always the the guy with everything, and he relished that role. And I and I don't uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'd hate to be kind of interpreted as saying, oh, he should have given back to the poor because I I'm a very ardent believer that that's not on footballers' shoulders. That we tend to do that. We tend to say, hey, you were really poor. Yeah. Why don't you feed your town now? Never acknowledge, A, how many footballers do then feed their town or build a hospital or build a school or give back to the communities or have incredibly interesting organized, you know, other people maybe do them, but organized things. Messi gives thousands, tens of thousands of breakfasts to African children every day, organized through a church. Um, well, many African players have gone on to become, you know, politicians and, and political leaders. And, in Argentina, there are two or three very, very big projects that are tackling the issues of child poverty that uh, have footballers attached. Maradona never quite got anything like that off the ground. The closest he came maybe was to try and forge a footballers' unions to defend their rights as workers, which was interesting. But again, it turned out to be basically a big a big thing about him himself and it it never mm. quite implemented social change on that um comparison you make with marcus rashford i i, I wonder if um one way to look at it is that with somebody like maradona in, in contrast to, to rashford it, it's as if his political significance and, and the symbolism just extends wildly beyond him and his actual views and, and it takes in the the way in which he actually played the game, and it takes in particular important uh, matches, you know, particularly the the England game in the 1986 World Cup. And I was I was struck reading some of the descriptions about Maradona's style of play. There's all this talk of like cunning and deception in order to defeat an, an ostensibly stronger opponent. Well, um, I think the, the the cunning and deceit uh, in in order to kind of dribble past your your opponent is not uh, is not peculiar to Maradona. It's it's uh, you know it's it's embedded in the meaning of Gambetta, which is the absolute football uh, kind of dream par excellence in Argentina. If you ask anyone to define the Gambetta, any footballer to define what Gambetta means for them, they'll say, well, it's to dribble past someone while deceiving them that you're going to dribble the other way. That's that's the meaning of the word. So I think often it's used in, in the English-speaking world, the cunning and the deception, because you don't have a word as, as efficient as amage, uh, you know, a, a, a common term, technical term, I'd even say, of, of football in Spanish. 
it's always difficult to translate amage, which is literally to pretend you're going to do one thing and then do another, but it's not peculiar to Argentina or to Maradona. Mm. Um, I think the way he played his football is so complex and, and so full of all the possible things that anybody could do on the pitch that it, it, it helps to understand the character and the myth that was built upon that character. And, of course, it all stems from how he played football because we might never have heard of him otherwise. But as well as the deception and the gambettas and the amazing... Um, dribbles, there is uh, a technical perfection equal to none. You know, that that can't be overlooked, how seriously good he was, even at the straightforward, you know, space creation, reading the game, seeing where everyone was, reading the opponent. As, and then on top of that, he had his own physical superiority. He was incredibly gifted. So all of that combines to make him uh, completely unique and better than most. And I, I wouldn't want to read some kind of left or right tendency in his abilities. I think, you know, society is, uses the, the imagination and the fantasy triggered by sport to create new possibles and... He was just the best muse for that, for everybody, because you, you look, you're looking at someone, you go, oh, my God, that's the best thing ever. You know, he, he was perfect. He was perfect. He was technically perfect. He was hardworking. He was uh, strategic. And he was beautiful, like a dancer or, you know, a geometric shape in motion. It was like he could fly and all the lyrical stuff. The mm. lyrical stuff without the technical perfection wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have got him as far as he went. I, I'd be careful with this idea of the deceit and the cunning as a, as a specific Maradona trait, mm. when all that's being done is is kind of a translation of of, a, of the word amage and gambetta, which, as I say, have have that embedded in in embedded meaning in the terms in the concepts. Uh, I suppose I'm particularly thinking about the significance maybe some people saw in in, in the England game in the 86 World Cup and, and the fact that it was England, you know, sort of a, a northern power and and so on. And so there was, a, you know, a particular kind of uh, political reading that one could make of that situation, I suppose. And obviously it's sort of very romantic and, and so on. But uh, I suppose that's what I was thinking of. Well, yeah, but I think, I mean, there's a difference between the hand goal and... The, and the kind of cunning and deception that you use to, to get uh, opponents that are much larger than you off your back. Yeah. The hand yeah. goal was but clearly cunning both, and cheeky yeah. and downright against the rules. Uh, I, I don't, I don't very, think... Very funny, depending on one's... Very, <laughs> exactly, I was just about to say, and I don't think anyone outside England particularly cares <laughs> as much about it. No. But no. just these, this past week, I've, I've started to think that I'm... I'm now no longer thinking of it in terms of two separate goals. I think there was just one one incident, which is the beginning of the run, the very beginning when Chilton comes out. I mean, it, Chilton makes a mistake, really, even if he hadn't scored with a hand, I think. I, I don't know. I've seen it so many times this week. But just from the beginning of that run up to the very end of the second goal celebration, 
I think that's a moment in, in the history of football. It's all one moment. Twice the ball goes into the net. Hundreds of times the ball and Maradona entrances in extraordinary ways. Most other players are annulled. You know, I think the English commentary says left for dead. I wouldn't go so extreme if I was describing it. But there really is, you have to watch again and again and again to see what anyone else is doing. It's literally if the entire sequence you are mesmerized by the combination of Maradona and ball or Maradona about to get the ball again, you know, mm. it's like the ball and him, they go to each other. And, and if you think of it, it was all one sequence. And then at the end, the result is two goals, the, the, the score line. But, you know, you could say, as Valdana said, well, the second one was worth two in a vacant lot. If you were just in the kick around, um, which is of course nonsense or, you know, you, you could uh, decree that that because it was all just one motion, then the scoreline of two shouldn't apply. But uh, it, it's a beautiful demonstration of everything that football can be. You know, really, if anyone else had uh, had scored with their hand in any other game, then most football fans would understand that if the if the ref doesn't see it or call it then it's allowed that's you know that's just one of the very few actual rules of football yeah I'm I'm always struck actually with the with the first goal uh, the extent to which it's sort of forgotten how skillful that first goal is you know all of the build-up to the to the handball is just you know fantastic (laughs) exactly Yeah. yeah I wouldn't want to get carried away with saying it was you know that was some kind of communist goal or some you know some you know no, no. Uh, socialist demonstration that the that the that the underdog will stick it to England or anything like that, which people do do. Like, oh, he he defeated his Majesty, Her Majesty's troops, or you know, I think he himself said at one point it's a little bit like pickpocketing an Englishman with you know with a again with a wink. And, um, but I think he you know he jested and was light in his. Reactions, and he was good at, at giving people what they wanted to hear. But he, again in 2014, um, which I think is probably his last very interesting public apparition in this TV program he did during the World Cup, he discusses the, the, the impact of the war before the match, the four years before the match, the Falklands mm. War, and and he he slightly dismisses it as as relevant to the game. He says, you know, it was mm. a, a a useless war organized to keep assassins in power, which is a real. I think it's a really poignant phrase, and it shows an understanding of of of. He's talking about the the kids who died, the soldiers who, in Argentina's case, were kids. I think you know that he he often lets out an understanding of profound issues, regardless of whether he's actually going to solve them or not, which of course he can't. But he he's aware of them, and at mm. times able to convey them. Obviously, there's a very different side to to Maradona that, um, to some extent, I've become more aware of since his death, and in particular his uh, his mistreatment of the the women in his life. 
Of course, there was you know, famously the refusal to acknowledge the child he fathered when he was at Napoli. And then, of course, there, were, there was the famous video and incredible allegations of, of him having uh, hit his uh, girlfriend in, in uh, 2014, uh, Rocio Oliver, maybe saying her name incorrectly. Um, now, I mean, you know, obviously there, there can't be any sort of question of, of his misdeeds in his personal life being balanced out by his success on the football pitch. And it's clear that in, in, in all sorts of cultural arenas, unusual talent does seem to lead to people being treated very differently from those those who are less uh, fortunate in the in the talents they've been uh, gifted with. Um, uh, you know, after, after all, how much leeway would Maradona be afforded if he'd been a, a mediocre or, or moderately successful footballer? And yet at the same time, it seems hard to think we should just sort of, sort of simply ignore the cultural and, and sporting significance of Maradona. Um, so, you know, what do you think is, is the correct way to, to approach this question? So I, I really believe Maradona is an incredibly powerful, symbolic being. You know, he, he means a lot of different things to a lot of different people at the same time. And that is a, a really interesting power to have. You know, we live in the culture of celebrity, but I, I don't think he was just a celebrity. I don't think he was superficial at all. So I think it's wrong to try and understand him superficially and to reduce m- major issues to anecdotes. So every single one of the things you've mentioned has a background and a context. And because it's Maradona, we are all aware of what that background and that context is. So I think a really interesting thing is happening in Argentina since his death, which is that this conversation is being had in the open, Mm. admittedly at times in a very kind of, you know, tabloid way with lots of screening on TV and so on. Whereas I don't believe a lot of things that he did can be justified, certainly not morally, I don't believe in applying a kind of the, the, the mean morality of mainstream judging of, of others and, and of the press. I think we need to understand him completely. And by the same token, there's a whole line, you know, a whole narrative in Argentina now that's going, now is not the time, respect for the dead. Mm, Why would you yeah. want to talk about this now when you've known about it for 40 years? I certainly don't believe in that. The the correct way to honour him and to actually, even if you didn't want to honour him, say don't like him at all, uh, which a lot of people don't, appreciate that maybe part the most important thing we can take from his passing through earth is is learning from him, learning from the good and the bad and understanding where it is that we can address the issues that he's so painfully highlighted for us as being problems in society. So, you know, you say a lesser footballer, but I say, I mean, I, I, I've known, you know, journalists write about how dreadful his cocaine taken while taking cocaine themselves. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, people go, oh, my God, he's an adulterer. He's got two young daughters. From a man with two young daughters and a mistress right there, well, he states this. Journalism and the media have a, have a, a huge responsibility to tell the story properly. And I do think it's interesting that the younger generations, because they're completely not reliant on mainstream media's choice of a headline to, for their information, it just comes to them, whether fake or not. 
uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just not tied down by these two or three anecdotes that we have turned into history over the years. So that, so I would say that, and I, I can't possibly justify anything he, he's done in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, I found it very difficult indeed to write, to write his obituary because mm. I, I did a little bit of me did feel, whoa, now's not the time, you know, mm. respect for the disease. With regard to the sort of the generational question, I mean, I, I wonder if uh, younger people won't have the same degree of emotional attachment necessarily because he's, to, you know, to a large extent, a figure of the past for, for them. They don't remember him playing. Perhaps they remember better the, the later years and, and, and a lot of them, what we saw in the later years was, was quite ugly at, uh, at times. And I was, um, I was aware of my own reaction to finding out about some of this stuff. Um, Obviously, Maradona's death comes a month or so after the, the death of, of Sean Connery. And, and we, we heard about uh, Sean Connery's treatment of women, in, including uh, actually justifying uh, hitting women, which, uh, you know, we didn't hear from Maradona. It seems, it seems rather worse in the case of Connery. But um, I was aware that I didn't feel that sort of resistance to know about Connery because, frankly, I didn't care that very much about him. I'm not interested in the Bond franchise, uh, say. And, and I do wonder if, you know, it would be good to hear more from people who aren't football fans when it comes to figures such as Maradona, because I wonder if, if we necessarily can take the most sort of clear-eyed view. Well, I, I mean, I don't know. I think the man and the art division, it, it goes on and on and on and on. Mm. Uh, you know, Picasso, Hemingway, whom I've mentioned. And, I, and I'm, I'm stumbling upon so many of those conversations, whether people in a cafe or online or on TV... Uh, you know, we're not going to solve it. All we yeah. can do is say, well, uh, yes, that's exactly right. He did have loads of children and then he wouldn't acknowledge them until somebody kind of won a lawsuit with, with DNA. And as I say, we saw what was going on. I mean, I, I don't think we can mm. judge him without judging the society that first enabled a little boy to do keepy-uppy on TV and it, and, you know, at a main football game every week, day in, day out, for three or four years before a doctor said this kid is malnourished. We watched him be malnourished and entertain. And I think that says a lot about us as a society. I mean, I can't take any yeah. responsibility. I said the other day in, on a panel, you know, I, I think we, we, we all need to acknowledge that we are a part of this. We, we consumed mm. him without interference. And someone said, "No, I don't. I don't take any responsibility." Some of us were trying to help and point out where the issues were, and I guess that's another conversation that can be had. How much do we do? And and specifically as media, you know, are we just going to observe everything? Are we just going to watch Gascoigne year after year after yeah. year until he completely implodes, or are we going to say, "Look"? Um, Let's stop. Let's stop showing these images now mm. and see, uh, is there help at hand? What can we do? Can, can something be done? I mean, what's the problem here? Is it, is it this guy's an alcoholic? This one guy is one alcoholic? Or is it just an endemic culture of poverty leads to fame, leads to excess, leads to a steep decline? Mm. Because Maradona is certainly not the only one who that's happened to. Obviously, we can't psychoanalyze him, but yeah, as we've discussed, he was obviously a very troubled person for much of his his life, and and that tends to be attributed to the experience he had of of stardom, the, the failure of of clubs he played for to protect him, and 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 the extremity of that rise from from poverty to being one of the, one of the most uh, famous people on the planet. 
But do you think that focus on stardom tends to be overdone, perhaps, and that it that it's quite plausible that Maradona may have suffered some kind of psychic injury in his childhood that may account for how his life panned out? Because you know, obviously, lots of people who are not known, who are, who, who don't have uh, any anything like Maradona's exposure to fame, their lives go in all sorts of painful directions. Well, you say we can't psychoanalyze him, but of course people have been psychoanalyzing him. Yes, I was about, in, in Argentina, he's oh, famous in for Argentina, being... Argentina, yeah. particularly. Yeah. Uh, but I, no, I remember uh, Jimmy Berth had, a, you know, when he, I think it's in the book, but certainly he's written about it when he was writing the autobiography about 25 years ago now, had this uh, bit about Maradona had a recurrent dream that he was drowning in a pool of shit and... You know, his psychiatrist told uh, this dream, and then some. And then he he keep he keeps wanting someone to come and rescue him and pull him by the head or the arm and pull him out of the dream of shit. But so the imagery is rich and in the lingo of Maradona. <laughs> and I was like, why did his psychiatrist tell you that? I mean, is there no? you know, professional secret here or whatever it's called, confidentiality. And when he was uh, admitted into hospital, you know, after his birthday in early November, the, the his personal neurosurgeon, Dr. Luca, who is now in a very, very complicated mess with, with the law, but would come out and give these press conferences saying, well, you know, he, we've had, he is an addict. Uh, he is a, he's having abstention from his alcoholism. We've had to restrain him by tying him to the bed and they're just airing stuff that you think, really? I mean, mm. really? And I could name judges, all manner of professionals that have come close to him and have not been able to just put aside the fact that he's Maradona and have gone straight for the, can I have a picture, would you sign my mm. shirt, before any kind of professional approach to him, which is not to say that some good people haven't worked with him and, and been near him. I don't think we can now try to outline a parallel reality in which he is something else. His scarring, his issues, his problems his stardom there is no possible way any of this could have could have played out given the circumstances we were in I mean, perhaps to borrow some lessons learned from the pandemic you know we see all these modelers doing these curves and they say well if nothing if no measures take place then this will be the outcome here and i think if you mapped Maradona starting off and saying, well, if no measure, if no interventions corrupt the line of this graph, of this curve, then this is the only possible outcome. Just going back to Maradona as a player, lots of people have been watching the uh, Asif Kapadia documentary and I, I seem to be something of an out outlier here and that I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, ah, lovely. Tell me why. Well, I, th I think, I think primarily, well, I think there's two things. I think, I suppose one thing is, is that sense that you get from the documentary that 
Maradona appears as without agency really it seems like he's just sort of pushed around and is sort of a, a victim of circumstances and, and and you don't really get a sense of him as an as an actor in his own life to some some extent um the second thing I suppose is that I feel and I think this is partly just the the cinematography it's just the way it's filmed is everything's so sort of tightly focused on him when it comes to the stuff on the pitch that you don't really get that sense of his game intelligence his ability to read the game which you've which you've um talked about and I sort of wonder if if one didn't know very much about Maradona you could come away from watching that documentary and perhaps think he's a very skillful player who kind of adorns a game rather than a, a player who, who dominates a game I, I don't know if that rings true at all to you but yeah that was yeah I, I think it's incredibly interesting um what you've just said both points and I agree with them wholeheartedly I think uh I don't know did you see the Costa Rica one a few years ago no, it's on my it's on my watch list. I'm going to watch it soon, but I yeah, haven't. I mean, I liked Capadias much, much more than Costa Rica's. But I well, firstly, there's something interesting going on about f- films about football, anyway, which is you know they're, they're they're difficult because football is a is a thing itself. So it's like films about music or you know novels about paintings. So I think football is its own narrative you know you get 90 minutes you get a lovely finale you get a narrative arch or two in the middle you get you know tension drama suspense but there's something very interesting going on with films about football anyway in the industry that is football which we haven't really touched upon with regards to Maradona because I I believe he was incredibly good at navigating his way through the industry so although he was the outcast and the underdog defender and the symbol of the people he remained within and and did very well you know and kind of in a way if you like dribbled with cunning and deceit mm. his way to the a, a higher echelons of power so when he kind of collapses in russia and is taken out on a stretcher he's on a massive fifa uh, ambassadorial you know freebie in the best seats and them the most expensive seats in world football and when he recovers he goes straight back to that role so there's no you know he is superb at, at, at handling the industry and superb at playing the game of getting those interested in in doing stuff about him to to, to dance to his tune there's a lovely piece in the guardian where Kapadia talks about this um, and his visits to dubai which is it's really really interesting i recommend and the other thing about this crazy industry is the uh, the the footage the 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 price of of footage so if you if you've got x minutes to show you very careful what you show and it's very difficult mm. to to kind of buy enough to give everybody a sense of what you know all the off the ball instances are because it's going to cost you a fortune. And what you want to show is Maradona's ankle or somebody hacking into him or whatever. So that's a powerful conspiracy in, in when it comes to filmmaking. There is a lovely thing, I think, at the beginning of Capadi, early on in the documentary, which I wish he'd done, he'd made more of, which is Maradona's physical trainer, Fernando Signorini. And Maradona himself, both talking about how how Maradona adapted his game when he moved from Barcelona to Naples, and how he learnt to do 
uh, to handle the speed differently and move his muscles. I mean, it's so powerful mm. and so interesting and technical. And I wish there had been a, a, a lot more of that. Um, because well, well, there's a lot of that in the Senna documentary. That that's sort of um, partly what, what I what I had a sense of. Uh, yes, and in yeah. Amy as well, in a way, in the sense that her her singing is. Uh, you know, is portrayed as something that comes out of her ability to understand what singing is about. Whereas in this, mm. as you rightly say, that there's a point at which football just seems to happen. And so this concept of agency, I think, is crucial. And it is being removed from him a lot. Even now, in the kind of aftermath of his death here with the uh, investigations, who gave him what pill, what, who was there, who surrounded him, would this have happened if instead of the current lawyer there was the, uh, you know, agent from the past and so on? As if somehow the entourage around him wasn't something that was completely dictated by himself. So I did write a piece for, for here about how I feel uh, actually he chose the people to execute. He was the strategist and he mm. is the absolute agent of everything that happened and then the people who wouldn't uh, carry out his strategy he dismissed and in fact there is a nurse that was dismissed because she wouldn't let him you know take drugs or alcohol or whatever um, and so just last week he dismissed the nurse that was possibly the what the only one with a chance to do something about his his health and and I I think Again, it's really important that we don't remove the agency from him in any of it. Even if you're, you know, one of the feminists who love Maradona, which is an actual group that's already been set up, Maradonian mm. feminists. You know, we mustn't remove the agency from him because he was absolutely the executor of every move and everything he did. And it was all based on his decisions. Yeah, that's what I would say. There's one other comment I might make about Cappadia, because I do think there was some incredible footage from Italy and so on, uh, you know, TV, and there was a, a fantastic conversation among Italian intellectuals about Maradona, and there's a, there's a guy whose name I didn't catch who said, you know, we don't... It's about the snobbery of and the classes. Essentially, everything about Maradona is about class, and this guy said it very clearly and very very articulately um he says something like we don't once he makes money and he is a celebrity and he is part of the establishment we then don't like it if he if he uses that money for it and and uses that um you know all, all those goods he reaches because mm. we believe he should be subject to different moral standards or to different standards. I don't think he was as moral than us. And I, I thought it was fascinating and nuanced and intelligent. And then that isn't picked up again either. And so we get, I think, about at least four or five times the literal line for a little black kid from the slum, blah, blah, blah. It's amazing, you know, He and then he got won the cup and greeted the people from the balcony of the presidential palace which for a little black boy from the slum is an incredible achievement. And I think that's, that's exactly what, what I was trying to, to, to describe at the beginning. That's reducing it to a cliche, which tells us nothing that explains the phenomena. You know, every footballer in Argentina, possibly in Africa, possibly from Asia, there's not that many, and I know a lot in England, are essentially the little 
whatever stereotyped word you use from the slum or favela or, mm. you know, estate or whatever. Everywhere that there's poverty, um, children or little boys, I mean, now little girls more, which is, which is nice, are able to entertain themselves with the, with the circle. You know, it can be a ball or a, a bunch of rags or an orange and then and they can play for hours they don't need a toy and they can make their world up and and engage in that glorious thing which is which is play and those that are very very good can then go on to the industry which is not very very good which is not glorious and lovely playtime um and so that applies to them all you could say tevis is like Maradona. I've mentioned Gascoigne, you know, we've mentioned Gascoigne and Marcus Rashford, Wayne Rooney. And something, however, needs to explain to us what makes Maradona stick up from them. And as well as his ability, there is all this other stuff about him. I think he was super intelligent and powerful. And, and as I say, I think like you, he was able to execute with absolute agency a lot of uh, things he was able to articulate them and he was able to convey them and, and live by his the set of, of of rules and standards he 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 set himself and do them all the time you know he he just never compromised for better or for worse so in that in that respect he was very unique and interesting and um yeah and 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 possibly less ill-advised than others in the football establishment or the football industry and more able to just continue with this quite haphazard, crazy thing that was his own thing. So, you know, by extension saying, well, if he'd been surrounded by better advisors and if he'd been, you know, mm. uh, blah, blah, he would have, you know, some some kind of massive corporate American sponsor would have saved him from oblivion. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I've not seen that happen yet. I think what saves humans is other humans. It's love, community. And I think he was essentially uh, superbly emotionally intelligent from a very young age and, and never really had anybody looking out for him or looking after him. Something that was psychoanalytically you need to happen very early on and he yeah. missed that chance. And and then none of us stepped in to, to do that. And perhaps it would have been impossible. Who knows? And now to the second of today's interviews on Diego Maradona. I spoke with football journalist Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan is the editor of The Blizzard and he writes a weekly column for The Observer. He's the author of many books on football, including Angels with Dirty Faces, The Footballing History of Argentina. So in the article that you wrote in The Guardian in the wake of Maradona's death, you talked about his extraordinary significance to Argentinians and how his emergence as a young player was the fulfillment of a, of a kind of prophecy in terms of the self-perception of, of the people of Argentina and, and the way football is played in the country. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think to understand the significance and why why he became the sort of image of Argentina, you really have to go back a hundred years, just over a hundred years, to the to the birth of the modern Argentina. So Argentina gains its independence from Spain in the beginning of the of the nineteenth century, 
and there's a series of civil wars and you know the the, the usual thing. And then the British come in, uh, and it's never part of the, the the empire, but it is part of the informal empire. So the British control the money supply. Uh, they controlled the railways, and so by doing that, they controlled the export of beef, which was where yeah, most of the economy was based. Uh, and, and also that that had significance with the aftershocks of the Civil War, that, that um, the, the, the economy and the country became based upon exports from Buenos Aires rather than on the power of the Estancias. So when the First World War begins and Britain, Britain's power recedes and Britain sort of uh, retreats, and you have a, a nice sort of uh, symbolic uh, symbol of that in that the Argentinian League began in 1891 and it was won by British sides or British sides featuring the, the children of British people up until 1912. And 1913, Racing win the title and they're the first Argentinian winner. So it's that period, just, just around about the start of the First World War, when Argentina is, is beginning to discover itself as a nation again. And it's a tabula rasa. Uh, the indigenous populations have been largely wiped out in a series of genocidal wars in the 19th century. And at the beginning of the, of the First World War, if you look at the people, roughly uh, two and a half million people, just over two and a half million people in Argentina. And of those, a million had Spanish descent, 800,000 Italian, 400,000 uh, Northern European Jews, 400,000 Arabs, uh, 40,000 Germans, 30,000 French, 30,000 British and Irish. And these people have nothing in common. And they come from very different backgrounds, they have very different ways of doing things. And they are looking for a common identity. What is it? What is it? What, what is Argentinianness? And there's public lectures about this. This is debated in the newspapers. This is a real sort of topic of conversation, a nation looking to define itself. And uh, a lot of people... Uh, so the, the poet Leopoldo Lagones says that the, the spirit of the Argentinian is the gaucho, the cowboy. And there's something very attractive about the gaucho. Uh, you know, the gaucho is, he, he's a, a solitary, self-reliant figure, but he also has a certain flamboyance. He's got a virtuosity. And, you know, he, he, he rides across the pampas alone and he controls these great herds of cattle and there's something quite heroic about that and quite, it fits into the macho-ness of, of, of Argentinian culture. And so you get in the early 20s, you get these gaucho clubs uh, grow up in Buenos Aires. And they're slightly ridiculous things. And, and you see people like Boicasares or, or Borges are, are very scathing of them. But they're, they're people who, I mean, yeah, I think it's Boicasares who says they're not dressing like gauchos, they're dressing like Rudolf Valentino. <laughs> yeah, they wear these very flamboyant costumes and, and yeah, they're wearing chaps just in the streets of Buenos Aires. And they um, they have asados, you know, these huge barbecues, which is still a huge part of Argentinian cultural life. You know, the grilling of meat has a has a cultural significance, and of course, the Argentinian literary epic um, is is Martin Fierro, which was published in two parts in 1872 and 1879, and that's about a gaucho right at the end of a gaucho period. And what's significant is the the gaucho's influence has been wiped out by the British because the British. Through a, a guy called Richard Newton in the 1840s imports wire, and by the 1870s people have begun to import barbed wire. And once you have barbed wire, you can put up fences. And once you have fences, you can keep the cattle in your estancia, and you don't need the gaucho to control them. And so this all this influence the gaucho had had, and this this relates to the Civil War as well. All that is gone, and the British have have killed it. So there's something slightly anti-British 
straight from the start in the Argentinian culture, and of course, you know, rebelling against this quasi-colonial rule of which the Falklands or the Malvinas are, uh, you know, a side issue, but very much part. Um, but then they realise that one of the things that the, the, this very disparate population does all agree on is that they all support the Argentina football team. When this team pulls on the blue and white stripes and they play Uruguay or Brazil or Chile, they want them to win. And so in nation building, the football team becomes hugely important uh, in a very direct way that I think you see, you see it occasionally, but it's, it's quite rare that it's there at the birth of a nation. Maybe you can say Croatia in the, in the 90s is the sort of the rebirth of independent Croatia. And you look at... Yeah, you look at how the Croatian national team belted out the national anthem during Euro '96, and, and this clearly means something more to them than it means to England players singing, singing the English national anthem. But then part of this discussion of, of what is Argentinidad comes to to realise that the spirit of the gaucho is kind of irrelevant and kind of meaningless in an urban context. And Argentina is a, a culture that is urbanising rapidly. Buenos Aires is growing and growing and growing, and where it is located. That same spirit you find in the Peabay, in the urchin child of the street. And he too has to look after himself. He too has to have uh, a cunning and a toughness. And this becomes transposed into football because it's, it's recognised that Argentinian football, the Argentinian game, is a game of the streets. It's a game of the, of the potreros, the vacant lots. And you actually see something very similar happens in Budapest and Vienna around the same time, that rapidly urbanising cities create these spaces in which kids play football where there's a lawlessness, where there's a, the surface is uneven. The ball might not even be a ball. It might just be a bundle of rags. And that encourages close technique, but it also encourages a willingness to use your elbows, a willingness to... You have to be able to look after yourself in these these mass games in small spaces. And that is in direct opposition to the British game, which has been propagated through the British schools in, in Buenos Aires, which came not only to, to British people of British heritage, but also the, you know, the elites. And those pitches, the, 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 you know, football there will be played on these great grassy pitches where the game is about running and about strength. So there's a direct contrast there to, to the football that the P-Bay is playing. Um, and so in 1928, Boracotto, the editor of El Grafico, which is a hugely influential sports magazine, and, and this, this sort of debate about what is Argentinianness has been raging in their papers, in, in, in their paper, for, in their magazine for, for a decade. Uh, and he says, he, he writes a very, you know, a very famous editorial where he says, if, if we were to erect a statue to the spirit of Argentinian football, it would be a Pibe, it would be this urchin kid. And it's, it's a very sort of florid, very lyrical a uh, bit of writing. He talks about this kid with his his mane of untamed dark hair, a trickster glint in his eye, the mischievous smile, his teeth worn down by eating yesterday's bread. So he's malnourished, he's impoverished. Uh, he talks about him wearing a vest with holes eaten by the mice of use. So you know, he can't afford new clothes. He's wearing these old, ragged clothes. And he talks about him being in the pose of, uh, you know, a, 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 about to dribble. And dribbling is hugely important. And that, again, links straight back to the gauchos because the Argentinian word for, for, for a dribble, for that in-and-out dribble, such as Maradona's second goal against England in '86, is gambeta. And that is a verb that derives from gaucho slang for the running movement of an ostrich. I guess a rea, technically, rather than an ostrich. But anyway. Um, so gauchos, p-base football, anti-Englishness. And that's why 
when Nardon scores those two goals against England with these two differing examples of Bibisa, with this cunning that the Pibe needs. The first, the the cheating, the 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 willingness to bend the rules to get get your own way, or break the rules to get your own way, and then the second, the virtuosity of the the Gambetta. That's why that is is so significant. Uh, but so but that that description, if you gave it to anybody, and didn't give many context, and said who's that, you would say it's Maradona. And so when he arrives and ten days before sixteenth birthday makes his late league debut for Argentinos, he, he he's arriving with the force of prophecy. Now he wasn't the first. It was Omar Sivori had very similar characteristics, but never never quite was able to live up to it. But Maradona was. And in terms of Maradona's background, I mean, it's, it's of course not unusual for football players to come from quite humble circumstances, but, but just how deprived was Maradona's childhood in, in Argentina? And, and could you also talk a little bit about the uh, apparent culture shock both Maradona and, and his family experienced when they moved to Barcelona in 1982? Yeah, so, so Maradona's father, well, sorry, both his parents were from Esquina, which is a village up the Paraná River. Uh, his father was of indigenous descent, was uh, his, uh, Guarani. And they lived, I mean, the, 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 the family home in Esquina has walls made of mud. His father was a, was a ferryman. His job was to, to shift cattle across to his island on the river, according to the tide, so they could, they could graze. Uh, his mother was, a, was of southern Italian descent, but you know, again, very, very impoverished. Uh, she decided to move to Buenos Aires uh, to gain work as a, as a cleaner. His father followed, and they... They, they set up home in Vicha Fiorito, which is a, a shanty town of Vicha Miseria. And their house was you know, breeze blocks and, and corrugated iron. So he was born in Lanús and then grew up in, in Vicha Fiorito. And it, it's you know, incredibly impoverished. Uh, you know, every day was a struggle to survive. And an incredibly violent area. The police would be bust in in the morning and bust out at night. They couldn't, it was, was too unsafe to maintain a presence overnight. Uh, and symbolically, it's, it's a hugely important area because... Um, well, Maradona described himself as a cabecita negra, and that's a phrase that Avita used to describe people of, of mixed indigenous and, and European descent uh, who had been very much alienated in the first half of the 20th century, and Avita tries to sort of um, embrace them back into society. But but this this area, uh, Vicha Fiorito, is on the banks of the Riachuelo, and so well, symbolically for two reasons. So the Riachuelo is is where Europeans first landed in Argentina, and they, they set up a settlement. I mean, roughly where Buenos Aires is now, uh, which quickly collapsed. Uh, and they left horses, actually. Um, and from those, I think, 13 horses. And from those 13 horses, all all the horses of the Pampas are, are descended. Um, but also, when you had the great the great march uh, of the Decamisados, of the shirtless ones, that brings Perón to power, they, they crossed the Riachuelo, and the crossing of the Riachuelo is this great, yeah, it's the crossing of the Rubicon. It's the, the great symbolic moment of the people rising up. And so, yeah, he, he then, I mean, clearly, yeah, they, they'd moved out of there once he started getting contracts in, uh, in Argentina. Uh, but then in 82, uh, he, he moves to Barcelona, and clubs just didn't look after players in the same way that they do now. And even now, I think it could be a lot, lot better, but um, he was sort of left to his own devices, and he... he he moved into a big house. He brought his family over. He brought his sort of entourage with him. Maybe this is slightly oversimplifying, but you sort of get the impression that the first sort of people who who, who sort of approached him, he, he sort of fell in with. And that's when he begins taking cocaine. Uh, but I, I think there's this great sense of dislocation. And, and you know, his mother talked about having panic attacks because she just couldn't couldn't deal with being in, in this very, very different world. 
So even though the language is ostensibly the same, she still found Barcelona totally alien compared to what she'd known in, in Esquina and then in, in Vicha Fiorito. Does she sort of um, clarify whether that's about the being in a different, uh, different country, a different continent, or, or is it more sort of uh, to do with class? Um, I'm not, well, I think probably class. I'm not entirely certain. And I, I guess they all feed in together. But I, I think it's a class issue that you know, she suddenly found herself. Um, I, I guess it's, not, it's, it's being not just in, a, in an alien environment, but there's nobody to go back to. So in Buenos Aires, even though you know, she then, you know, Maradona moved, moved his parents into a nicer house, they could still go back and see their friends in Bicha Fiorito. They still knew people. Uh, they could still go for their asados. Whereas in Barcelona, they, they, they didn't have that fallback. Of course, after Barcelona, he, he goes to Napoli. Um, at the time, uh, the, the poorest city in, in Italy, one of the poorest cities in, in Europe, and obviously still a, a, a part of Italy with a, a great deal of, of poverty. Just how strange and surprising a move was that at the time? Um, well, it is and it isn't. I mean, Napoli had been, had been building. I mean, yeah, there's this sort of slight myth that, that he turned up and there was a... You know, a load of yokels had never kicked a ball before at Napoli. That wasn't the case. They had good footballers. Um, there, there'd been investment. Uh, the Camorra clearly saw the benefits of having a, a good football team. But still, for them to break the, the world transfer record was was something extraordinary. Um, it, but it's one of those deals that sort of immediately you can see why it makes sense. And I feel like I'm talking about symbolism a lot here. And, and may, maybe a lot of football is to do with symbolism and what feels right. But his, his mother was from southern Italy, so immediately he's going to the big city of southern Italy. He, the fact he's a Capacito Negra, he, he feels alienated and rejected on quasi-racial grounds, as Neapolitans feel alienated and rejected by the northern Italian cities on quasi-racial grounds. Yeah, he, he's, he's tried to go to, to Barcelona, which is run by these sort of almost aristocratic Catalans, and he hasn't got on with that at all. And so he's going to something much earthier. And so you can see why it would appeal to him and you can see why that, you know, that, that project could be sold to him and, and why he would go. I mean, you know, I say this, it's, it's not like, I mean, what, a story I have to say I didn't know until yesterday, but it appears to be true. Um, he had this agent, uh, Jorge Saitaspira, who's an amazing story in himself. Uh, but when Maradona was at Barcelona, he became obsessed by Princess Caroline of, of uh, Monaco. <laughs> And uh, Silas Villa tried to. I think she. I think she was a mother with three children at the time. Certainly a couple of children. Um, and and Silas Villa tried to set them up on a date. And she, she said no. <laughs> that would have been quite a wedding to see. I, yeah. I, I imagine. <laughs> Incredible. On the question of, and uh, you know, it can often be a, a slightly tedious question, but but on on the issue of, of comparisons, so frequently Maradona is compared to. Lionel Messi, uh, it used to be he was more, more often compared with, with Pelé. But I, I wonder if it's more useful in terms of uh, trying to get a sense of how good a player Maradona was by comparing him to a, to a contemporary and, and a player who was probably the best in the world uh, until Maradona began to see success with Napoli and Argentina. And, and that would be uh, Francis uh, Michel uh, Platini, who was uh, just five years older than, than Maradona. Putting aside Maradona's personality and all the all the cultural significance that he's taken on, just at a, at a technical level, what makes Maradona a, a superior player to a you know a really you know fantastic footballer like uh, Platini? Um, I mean, it's, it, these are almost impossible questions to answer, and I, I think you end up saying something quite banal and saying genius. Yeah, you know, Platini was brilliant and brilliant in almost every way. Yeah. 
incredibly, um, yeah, he could play in an incredible variety of positions. He had an incredible brain, you know, incredible touch. And you know, Maldonado had, I suppose he wasn't as versatile, but he had had all of that. He had this great explosive pace, but he also just did things that nobody had ever seen before. And we haven't really seen since. You know, he 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 in, in some ways he he had the, the the quality that Messi has of minimalism that he he does the the least difficult thing he needs to do to achieve his ends, which I think something like Cristiano Ronaldo, for instance, often overcomplicates, while still not denying his genius and his brilliance. But Maradona just did things you'd never seen before. There's a, there's a great point uh, that the former Governor General of the Bank of England, uh, Villa fan, uh, Mervyn King, uh, a point he makes, and he was, he was drawing an analogy, I have to say, I didn't really understand the economics. And he says that, that Maradona's second goal against England the extraordinary thing about it is he runs in a straight line. He, he realises what he doesn't have to do, that defenders are reacting to what they think he's about to do, and he doesn't do it. He does the slightly simpler thing of just running straight, and they, 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 they can't deal with that. So, yeah, I think an astonishing sort of awareness. Um, and there's a line from um, it's a, a coach at Ajax had of, of, of Dennis Bergkamp. He said that the seconds of the greats last longer than hours. And I think you see that with Maradona, that it's, it's, it's like he's in the Matrix or something and the game slowed down and you can just choose what he wants to do. Allied to, you know, this, as I say, this great explosive pace, this great tactical awareness, this, this, this great technical ability. And in terms of his, his ability, do you think there's anything that's, that tends to be missed in, in the way that we uh, see Maradona's uh, skill on the football, football pitch? Um, I think, well, two things which sort of go together. So one, I think he, he as a player... Most of the time, and there are examples where this this failed him, but most of the time, extraordinary generosity of spirit to his teammates. So there's an incident in the semi-final of the World Cup in 1986 when they beat Belgium 2-0 and he scored two sensational goals. And then, I don't know, five minutes ago or something, he another brilliant run, rolls the ball across the box. I, th- I think it's Valdano coming on it and, and misses. A really simple chance. And a lot of great players would have bawled him out or sort of turned away or expressed their disgust somewhere. And he doesn't. He, he applauds and sort of is encouraging. And so I, I think one of the reasons he was able to be successful with two slightly lesser teams, Argentina and Napoli, uh, was was that he was able to bring others with him. And he, you know, he had this great leadership. So there's a story from the 86 World Cup when Carlos Bilardo, the coach, who was sort of you know, a notorious hard man, disciplinarian, and he, he found out that a, a couple of players had, had been out late. They'd broken curfew the night before. And it's, it's the goalkeeper, Islas, is, is the one who's really late. And Bilardo's sort of going berserk, but he doesn't know it is who it is. He just knows somebody's coming late. And he's got, he gets them in the dressing room at, at the training grounds that says, right, I want you to own up. Who was it? Who broke curfew? And everybody's sort of sitting their heads down, looking at the floor, and nobody says anything. And Bilardo's getting more and more worked up. So you're right, you've got to tell me, you know, whoever it is, I'm fining you. You're not getting your bonus. You're not playing the next game. And everybody's still staying at the ground. And he says, right, this is your last chance. You've got to tell me. If you don't tell me now, then when I find out who it is, I'm just sending them straight home. We're not playing the rest of the tournament. I'll never pick them again. Their career's over. And again, everybody's staying at the ground, not answering. And Maradona goes, oh, yeah, boss, it was, uh, it was me. And of course, Bilardo then, he's not, never going to send Maradona home. <laughs> just go, no, that's oh, the end of Bilardo's uh, okay, career. Right? Yeah, okay, lads, we'll... Uh, Start in 10 minutes then. <laughs> and, and, you know, Islas clearly then had this great gratitude to Maradona. And then allied to that generosity and that leadership is, is I think, profound tactical awareness. 
yeah, there's a tendency to, because his brilliant goals are so often great dribbles, to think that every time he got the ball, he ran with it and beat five men. That's just not true. Yeah, he's a great pass to the ball and, and yeah, great passes to the ball. It's not just a technical thing. It's knowing when to pass and how hard to pass and to whom to pass. And you you, you watch, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem when you don't watch whole games. If you just watch highlights, you, you kind of perhaps don't see that. If you watch some of those full games he played for Napoli in, well, yeah, when they won the title in 8-6-7 particularly, and his passing is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, there's that wonderful assist as well in the 86 final, isn't there, for the... Uh, for Bouchard, the yeah. last goal. And you see there, there again, you see his generosity of spirit that uh, he's he's been a really obvious man of the match in the, in the quarterfinal and the semifinal. And the final, he's, he's sort of quite quiet because he and Lothar Mateus cancel each other out. But then, you know, when West Germany get it back to 2-2 and Mateus just switches off for a second and Maradona pounces. Um, but you know, there was no attempt in that game for him to to overplay it, to try and impose himself, to try and do something that the game didn't allow him to do. He waited for his chance, and sure enough, it came. And when it did come, he you know, he seized the opportunity. I don't know if you saw this, but on the day Maradona died, the hashtag cheat was briefly trending in the UK, and and there was this notably uh, churlish reaction from some of the newspapers to, to Maradona's death, particularly in the, the Telegraph and the Mail. Were you at all surprised by that? And does that simply reflect the, the very long-standing views uh, regarding Maradona amongst some people in, in, in England uh, on the hand of God goal in 86? Because when I saw that that was trending, I found myself thinking, you know, is the greatest player in, in world history now just another front in, in the UK's culture wars? <laughs> uh, I mean, yes, he is. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's also, I don't know, it's, it's almost like they, they wrote those obituaries in 1987 and they haven't updated them since. Uh, I mean, certainly, if you, I think it was a Telegraph's obituary. The first paragraph was an extraordinary paragraph and must have been written at least 20 years ago. And I guess that's a problem if you take huge amounts of cocaine and the perpetually at death's door, that people do write the obituaries very early. But it, it, it seemed to reflect a, a rawness of anger, which feels inappropriate, uh, what, uh, 34 years later. But also, it, it's just sort of slightly childish. I mean, yeah, of course... Ideally, he, he wouldn't have scored a goal like that, and it, you know he 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 did it on other occasions as well. You know he there's a, he gets away with the handball in the '89 UEFA Cup final in in Russia, well Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and Russia. But yeah, you know, the, the Soviets were furious about a handball. He headed he handled a Oleg Kuznetsov header off the line in in the group game in in 1990. Would have would have put Soviets through and Argentina out if that had gone in, and and all else had continued to be equal. So for England to feel particularly aggrieved, I think, seems a bit a bit pathetic. But also, you know, who's the real cheat? Is it the guy who punched the ball over the line or is it Terry Fennick who smashes him in the face <laughs> with his elbow and then, you know, commits what seemed to me three red card, what would now be three red card offences against him? I mean, there's a line of Fennick's that he, you know, he said, uh, yeah, I smashed him early in the second half and, and I, I thought, well, that's the last we'll see of him. And he bounced back up, and I thought, "Oh shit, we're in trouble here." I, I, you know, Fennick makes no bones about the fact that his job was to kick him out of the game. And yeah, there's all there's a danger from from our perspective now of sort of imposing our modern morality on that. Yeah, the game was a, was like that in those days. People did try and physically intimidate opponents, but equally, I'm not really sure England can claim some kind of moral high ground. I mean, yeah, if you really want to go into, really want to re-referee that game, if we had VAR, Maldon's first goal wouldn't have happened. And the second goal wouldn't have counted either because Glenn Hoddle is fouled 
which allows the ball to break to Hector Enrique, who plays as Maradona, who starts the run. But I mean, what good? I don't know what good is served by imp- you know, imposing the sands of today on men. It was it was a different time, and those things happened. And I, I just think when you have a figure of that greatness, yeah, I mean, there are things to be very concerned about with Maradona. I mean, there's, there was allegations of wife beating, or well, wasn't his wife, I guess, so domestic abuse, uh, and there's a video of him apparently slapping his girlfriend, which are deeply disturbing. Uh, and and you know, we should not ignore those things. But I, I always sort of, I'm always very uneasy about the attempt to isolate, particularly when you're, you're assessing somebody's life, 60 years of somebody's life, to take one aspect and pretend that's the only thing. Maradona is this mass of things. Some of them are really, really good. Some of them are really terrible and awful. You know, he, he, he fired an air rifle at journalists. That's also a terrible thing. He, you know, he, he was charged, though not convicted, uh, of importing drugs into Argentina. You know, the, there's, I mean, his, his tax affairs were shambles. So, yeah, it's not a case of, of, of looking at one or the other. It's a case of saying all of these things are true. He's a person of, of infinite fascination for, for, for good and for, and for ill. But to focus on one handball in a life that rich, rich in the good and rich in the bad, seems extraordinarily narrow-minded. On that point you make about looking at the, the entirety of, of Maradona's life and his, his behavior, do you feel like the balance is being well struck at the moment? I mean, there was, there was an article in the, in the Guardian by Joan Smith who pointed out that the lack of mention in particular of Maradona's treatment of, of women in, in the obituaries. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, um, it is a difficult balance to strike. But when his artistic gifts were so great... You know, where, where do you put that line? Is Do you put it in the intro? Do you put it in the fifth paragraph? So, you know, the, the piece I wrote in The Guardian was 1,200 words long, and it was very specifically, you know, I was asked to talk about what he meant to Argentina. And so I think for me to, to include it there, it wouldn't have been unjustifiable, but it, it would have been slightly odd, uh, because I think he, you know, he meant 1,200 words worth of stuff to Argentina, but didn't really include that. Uh, but I did mention the piece that he was indulged and there's a sense that the laws didn't really apply to him. Um, I mean, it's not just the domestic abuse. You know, the fact that he you know, he didn't acknowledge his, his son for 30 years is also pretty... I mean, for the son is terrible, but also for the son's mother is terrible. Uh, you know, he, he was serially unfaithful, which, I mean, how serious an offence do you regard that, I, I guess, is down to you. But certainly being Claudio, his, his long-term partner and then wife and now ex-wife, uh, well, ex-wife before he died I imagine it's pretty miserable for her so and you know um, I mentioned the agent before Sotospiller it's a slightly different different tack but it also shows the way he he treated people so Sotospiller was this very sort of unathletic kid he he had polio uh, but his brother was a really good footballer I think his brother was at Argentinos and his brother got kicked in the abdomen during a game and from complications of that his brother died and this sent Sotospiller into this terrible depression. I, mean, I think he, he had depressive tendencies anyway, but this, this sort of was the, 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 the focus of it. And, and for a long time, he wouldn't leave his room. And then he was sort of told, oh, there's this, this new number 10 at, at Argentinos. Who, he must have been, what, about a year older than Maradona, I think. Um, why didn't you come and watch him? And so this is what breaks that depressive cycle. He, you know, he gets out of this room, he goes to watch Maradona, and he sort of falls in love with him. And he's also got a very sharp mind and he realises that Maradona needs help. He needs representation. He's being exploited. And he, even though he's, he's still a teenager at the time, 
he becomes his agent. And yeah, they become friends just because he's got some cash, which Maradona still then was very poor. So you take him out for pizza and Coke, uh, uh, Coca-Cola, I should say. <laughs> <Maradona>. <laughs> um, and yeah, he begins to represent him and he, he negotiates the, the move to Boca. And one of the things he does, which is like extraordinary, he, he, this is 19, what, 1980 or 81, he starts having a TV crew following him around. And that's why Asif Kapadia's film is so brilliant, because the, the tapes, which were thought lost, Asif Kapadia found. And so all that footage, a lot of that footage, archive footage, is Sight of Spieler's tapes, uh, which is an archive to find. I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to Asif Kapadia about it, and he said it was just sort of, it's like walking into Aladdin's cave or something. Just the extraordinary riches for a filmmaker. And he talked about you know, how difficult it was to leave, leave so much of it out. Um, and yeah, Sight Spiller negotiates to move to Barcelona. But it, it's then um, after after he moves to, to Napoli and, and the Camorra get involved, Sight Spiller is sort of sidelined. And Maradona gets into his head that Sight Spiller had cheated him. And they never really spoke again. And, and when Asif Kabadi uh, spoke to Maradona, yeah, and he, he said, yeah, tell me about Sight Spiller. And Maradona said, I don't want to talk about him. He cheated me. And this was, you know, uh, 30 years later. And Sight Spieler ended up, um, I, he killed himself in 2017. And he, I mean, who knows? But whether Maradona talking to him near the end would have helped, who knows? You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider rating or reviewing it on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.